Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, how's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators come together and let you know what we've been playing recently. And this episode is a good one. On this episode, we have Meeple and the Moose, Mozart Games, The Cardboard Kid, Dice and Dragons, The Rat Hole, Board on the Air, The Meeple Dungeon, Board Game Hot Takes, All Games New and Old, Board Game Community Show, Board and Game with Andrew Bookalts, definitely a board game podcast and cardboard conjecture. That's a lot, folks. Check the notes and enjoy. Hello, my name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeepleOnTheMoose.com, and I'm here to talk about the games I played this week for what you've been playing Wednesday. The one-year anniversary of starting our Clank Legacy campaign is quickly approaching. While we have no formal agreement that we should prioritize playing Clank over over any other game, there is a specter looming in the back of my mind. I don't like unfinished business, but legacy games seem to present a uniquely difficult challenge. I only have one game night per week, so should we commit a month or two of games to a single legacy experience? Or do we let the box gather dust as we wait for the day when we're all gathered and are inclined to progress our story? Clank Legacy is a deck-building adventure for 2-4 players. In Clank, both the original and the Legacy variant, players begin with a generic deck and are tasked with diving deep into the caverns, attempting to nab an artifact and then escape back to the entrance. The deeper you go, the more valuable the artifacts will be. The wrinkle is that many cards and effects will generate Clank, the titular resource, which is just a cube of your color that will end up getting thrown into a bag. At certain points during the adventure, a dragon will strike, which will have you remove a number of cubes from the bag. Any cubes that get pulled out that have your color are then placed onto the health track. If you reach the end of that track with your cubes, you're out. If you happen to be underground when you run out of health points, you score nothing. You lose. You're done. Have a good day. If you're above the ground line, you still get to score everything you've collected. If you're a champion and you manage to make it back to the starting space with an artifact in hand, you're rewarded with a mug of ale worth 20 points. Clank Legacy expands on that concept by peppering the board with a half dozen story prompts at any given time. The core of the game is still the same. Buy cards from the adventure row, delve into the depths, return with an artifact. The game ends when all players are either knocked out or have returned to to the tavern. Now, the first four games of Clank Legacy had me so enthusiastic. Each game takes about two hours to play as there's a lot of reading and stickering that goes on during each game. It's those moments that had me the most excited. I love being told to place stickers on the board and discovering new places and mechanics. Because discovery is my love language, I beeline for the story prompts, usually eschewing the goal of the game, which is to acquire the artifacts and escape the dungeon alive. We played the first six games with four players, which is our whole group. Unfortunately, after our last game, 
Bigfoot threw up the white flag, opting to bow out of any future games as they just weren't having any fun. We all would rather play with Bigfoot rather than exclude them from our game night, so Clank Legacy has been sitting in my closet awaiting for our return. This week, Bigfoot was out camping, so we returned to the world of Acquisitions Incorporated to play game 7 and 8. And I'll be honest here, Clank Legacy had lost its luster for me. The first four games I was so enthusiastic and excited, there was so much to discover and I was ready to proclaim this as my favorite Legacy experience. Part of me wonders if I, if I felt this way because we played those four games back to back to back to back and then we didn't return for games 5 or 6 for a couple months. In games 5 and 6 we struggled to get anything done. One player would get a boon that would allow them to hop, skip and jump far down into the caverns, making other play players wary of chasing them. What's the point of going all the way down if the valuable artifacts are already gone? Ge generally, at this point, someone would scoop up a low point artifact and then bolt for the entrance again. This song and dance left very little time for players to explore the story prompts. There was one game where by all rights I should have lost miserably. I was too far down in the map and two players had already escaped, meaning that there would be at least 8 cubes drawn out of the bank in between each of my turns. Luckily, the story prompt I chose to chase to the bottom of the map revealed a new artifact that I could collect and a coach space which teleported me back up to the top of the map. Now, most story prompts aren't that effective, but it was a mem memorable moment for me. In a three-player game, a lot of the tension and fear is dissipated. Sure, one player can go deep into the underground, but there are a couple high-value artifacts, so chasing, chasing someone down doesn't feel like a lost cause. If someone escapes with a low-value item, it's only one dragon attack per round, which is much more manageable. This loss of tension allowed us to explore more, and by the end of the 8th game, we had satisfied every quest we had available, and chased down all the story prompts that were on the board, which is a much more satisfying experience. If you have plans to give Clank Legacy a try, I would recommend 3 players. 4 has just too many people who can all spoil your plot, and there ends up being a lot, a lot, a lot of time between each of your turns. It's not uncommon for someone to take a turn and then to have to stop and read a story segment and apply stickers and then the next player takes a turn and then you have to stop and read a story segment and apply stickers. It, it can drag on a bit. I'm finding my joy again with 3 player games and I really hope to finish off the campaign of Clank Legacy soon. And that's the only game I played this week. If you want to read my board game reviews, you can find them over on my, on my blog, meepleandthemoose.com. You can follow me on Instagram at meepleandthemoose or on Twitter at moosepeople. Have a happy Wednesday. Hey there, this is Chris Morris from Mozart Games once again for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. You can find me on Twitter as SpiderMo, that's spider with a Y, if you want to give me a follow for board game thoughts some of my game design challenges, and just a bunch of random thoughts and opinions. This week, I want to talk about Mysterium Park, which is a 2020 follow-up game by designers Alexander Nevsky and Oleg Sidorenko to the 2015 game Mysterium. Both games are cooperative, where one player is a ghost and they need to give clues to the investigator players about how they died. Mysterium Parks shortens the length of the game by removing a portion of it, but still delivering a similar experience. Now, this appealed to me when I saw it at my local game store a few weeks back, as although I enjoyed the concept of Mysterium, I found it overly long and bloated. 
This version scales back everything just a bit, turning it into a shorter playing game that takes up a fraction of your time and playing area while still giving you a complete game experience in the process. If you have never played Mysterium before, in this game players will all win or lose as one, but the trick is that the ghost player cannot communicate directly with the other players. Instead of using words or gestures, the ghost must hand out cards with abstract artwork on them. This has been done in a few games in recent years, and while I don't usually enjoy most co-op games, this genre really works for me. This version takes place in a creepy 1950s-inspired amusement park with a variety of locations and characters that you may have found in such an environment. There will be three rounds to Mysterium Park. The first two play similar to each other, where there will be nine characters or locations played to the center of the table, and the ghost must try to get each player to correctly guess one specific card that is randomly assigned to each player at the start of the round. They do so by playing cards from their hand to give each player subtle hints as to who they want the investigator to guess. If all players can correctly guess their characters and locations in the time provided, the final round narrows it down to only three sets of cards, and the investigators have one opportunity to guess which set is the murderer of the ghost and the location of the foul deed. The players can work together to decipher the cards that they were provided, but the ghost cannot communicate in any way. No nods, winks, or speaking during the game. If the players don't all correctly guess their cards on the first try, they can attempt to guess again in a subsequent round. But time is tight, and they only have six attempts to correctly narrow down both of their cards. The ghost also has a limited hand of cards that they must carefully hand out to the players, and they have three opportunities during the entire game to discard any unwanted cards and draw new ones, so they must carefully decide when it's best to use those opportunities. The characters are really well done with distinguishing features on all of them, but enough subtle hints that you can possibly carry over from one to another that there's always room for doubt as to who you should be trying to guess. The locations are not so varied, with many of them looking very similar to one another, and it can be frustrating as the ghost trying to figure out how to get your players to guess the right cards. I wish that there was a little bit more variety for the locations for this reason, and I usually recommend to players that they probably want to guess the characters in one or two tries, leaving them with four or five chances to pick their locations. While the character and location cards are all fairly dark and creepy looking, the 84 vision cards that the ghost uses are bright and colorful for the most part, with lots of great details on them that can help or hinder the players in their attempts to guess their cards. I think that's what makes this game so fascinating. Players will often see something different on each card than others will see, and it's these little rabbit holes that get created in the game that make it so interesting. Was I given this card because there's a knight on it? So I must be trying to guess the strong woman. Or does the clock on the wall represent the hypnotist? Or could it be that the child, who kind of looks like Harry Potter reading a book, is the magician? Or maybe I'm supposed to guess the clown, and the mirror is how he does his makeup. There's so many permutations, and table talk is a huge part of the game, even when one player can't say a word. Now, as the ghost, you will feel super confident with your choices as players immediately choose the right card, and then wince eternally as they quickly talk themselves out of it and ultimately choose something totally different in the end. However, 
listening to how the players get to their final choices is huge, as you can play subsequent cards that can hopefully push them back to where you want them to go, if you're paying attention. You'll see less than half of the locations and characters in each game, so replayability is massive. More than half of the vision cards are usually used in a game, but with the variety of all of the other cards, that's not a hindrance at all. There's also a massive deck of cards that the ghost uses to determine which cards they want each investigator to guess, and with all of this variety, you will never play the exact same game twice. The game gets a little bit more difficult with more players, as the ghost will always have the same hand size of cards to hand out to everyone, so they may have to be a little bit more selective on what they give to each player at larger player counts. And there's also variants in the rulebook to make it a little bit harder for a two or three player game. Because of its quick playtime, 30 to 45 minutes in my experience, it's very easy to reset the game after finishing and give another player an opportunity to play as the ghost. The components are all top-notch as well, with gorgeous markers that players use to mark their guesses, and an insert that fits everything inside the box compactly and safely. There's not enough space for sleeved cards if that's something that you do with your games, but with how little shuffling that you'll do, I personally don't see this as being an issue. I'm honestly amazed at how dense and heavy this little box is every time that I pick it up. They crammed a lot into this game, and it is an incredible value for your money as well. With Halloween approaching in the not-so-distant future, Mysterium Park is a great addition for your spooky game night. It also fits in very well any time of the year, and makes for a perfect beginning or end-of-night game choice. It's also one of those games that, even if you don't know the people that you're playing with overly well, you can still thoroughly enjoy, and I look forward to bringing this with me to Shucks at the end of the month to get in a few games with people that I meet while I'm there. So thank you for listening to my thoughts on Mysterium Park. Once again, I am Chris Morris, and you can find me on Twitter as Spidermo. if you want to give me a follow there for some more of my insights and my gaming preferences. Happy gaming, everyone! And may all your dice rolls be critical successes. Hey everyone, I'm a cardboard kid. After a busy end to the summer, I'm back in school, but hoping to still contribute to what you've been playing Wednesday is at least once a month. As of recording, I haven't played the cat side of Fort's Cats and Dogs expansion yet, but I feel that the dogs add a cool decision to the game. Do you boost, use the power, and racing to collect dogs gives you a backup way to score because the player for the most earns seven. I don't love this, but I do enjoy it. It adds more luck to the game though, so watch out for that. My dad kept nagging us to try Shards of Infinity, so we gave it a shot at Falcon 35. I thought the description sounded decent, but I wasn't in any rush. Despite how simple the game felt, it reminded me of Hero Realms at first, but it's really good. The gameplay's smooth and has a good flow, and the factions feel different yet creative. Players can find ways to make it all come together. Azul is amazing, and is absolutely a modern classic. I'm growing to be a big fan of Michael Kiesling, and this is so clever. I feel that the amount of luck is just right, and... Yeah, so good. 
I like Azul stained glasses Sintra's glazier movement and modular aspect, although I prefer the base game. My dad doesn't like a lot of looking games, so he prefers this one. They're both really good. My review for Unlock Star Wars will be going up in a month, but the quick version is that despite knowing that this was designed to be simpler and approachable, much of it was too easy. The third scenario has some very annoying parts and might actually put off casual gamers. The theme is also more or less repeating famous scenes from different points of view. After just one play, I can say that right now, I love Smartphone Inc. It's one of those games that takes a lot of ideas I've seen elsewhere, but puts them together in a polished, economic-inspired area majority game. Renature is another Kiesling game, and this time he's joined by frequent collaborator Wolfie and Kramer. It's a domino game where you need to match icons, but an area majority game where you battle for the areas you enclose. It's super clever, and thanks to the wild mechanism, clever players will almost always have something to do. It can also be really mean, which you know I enjoy in games. I had almost no idea what Junkyard was about, aside from it being dexterity style, but it isn't just one of those place things and have some laugh style of games. You need to be more than careful. You need to be clever because the rules and cards, balancing speed, and fans. We had a lot of fun with this. Plague Inc. is a pandemic style game in reverse, and I was familiar with the mobile version, so this is one I suggested. We liked the gameplay, but the ending dragged. There were some personal reasons why this happened, and in hindsight, we could have been more aggressive. While we only thought it was only okay, it stuck with us. My dad found it on clearance, so we're waiting for it to arrive so we can try some of the variants or other modules. Plus, we'll be able to dive in with better understanding. After playing a handful of matchboxes already, we finally played the original, Unmatched Battle of Legends Volume 1. I, um, I feel like those characters aren't balanced well. Medusa is far too powerful. Alice depends far too much on Lug. Sinbad seems good, but takes a while to get going. We didn't use Arthur. It seems like a lot of people in BGG feel the same way, and there are tips and house rules. The thing is, I don't feel like we have to adjust the boxes we already have, so when we're no rush to buy this or try it again, maybe once the app officially releases. Mum loved Valley of the Kings. I don't like it as much, but do enjoy this one. The pyramid timer, the phases, and the decision to keep a card or entomb it, only word for it to be worth points, are all clever. I look forward to enjoying this one more. I thought Dimension was going to be fun, but forgettable game, but it's stressful in a good way. Time-based abstract puzzle. We all were quite surprised. It's also super playable and incredibly quick. We'll probably pick this one up. For a short, lighthearted game, The Adventures of Tennessee James, even as a prototype, is a fun, clever little adventurous deck builder. Honestly, it's like Clank, but better in that you can play two games thanks to this one's timer and the time it takes to play one game of Clank. I'll have more to say on this one once I get my hands on it again. That's about all for now. In the meantime, you can watch my reviews on YouTube under the Cardboard Kid. Over on Twitter, I post photos of our gameplays and love chatting with people. Find me at cardboard underscore kid. If you use TikTok, I'm also cardboard underscore kid there. Please stay safe. Happy gaming. What up, gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dice and Dragons. And you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram at Dice and Dragons, and on Twitter at Dice and Dragon. And what is it today, Julie? It's What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. And what have we been playing? I'm going to let you say it since you like to make fun of my pronunciation. My little side. You kind of mispronounced it there, too. Okay. But in any case, <laughs> we've been playing uh, this game from Stolen Games that is 
based on the original scythe. It is designed by Hobby Chow and Vienna Chow. Uh, this has an interesting story to it. Uh, the father and daughter wanted to play the original game but found it a little too complex, so they designed their own game, uh, which is based on the mechanics in the original but themed for younger players. And I have to say, they've done a good job at taking a Scythe and turning it into a family game from what I understand. Neither of us have played the original uh, as of yet. It's been on my list. I wasn't sure if Julie would like it. After playing this, I think she might actually sit down and play the original with me. Not sure yet, though. <laughs> we have so many games to play. Um, you know, but I, I didn't really didn't know what to expect with this. But, you know, with as with all Stonemaier games, um, the production quality is really good for for one. Uh, it helps bring you into the world right away. Yeah. We're in the, the kingdom of Palm. Yes. Bright, colorful. Love the minis. Love the fact that the minis have colored bases as well. Yeah, the minis are cute. They're chunky little minis, uh, which seem, you know, really appropriate for a family game. Uh, I wouldn't be afraid to play this actually with the little man now if he understood a little bit more. Um, but you know, I, I don't think. Well, he'd have fun moving them around the board. I don't think we'd get much of a game out of it, but he'd move them around the board. <laughs> yeah, with no apparent reason why. But in any case, um, you know, this this game has a lot of different things, ways that you can play the game. Uh, I'm sure there are ways that it can be played that are not as efficient uh, as others. For us, with the experience that we had, um, that we have playing games, this these were really quick games. It did not take us long um, to play them. Um, and, you know, this is a competitive game that has some take that mechanics. Luckily, you know, it's not, it's very fam family friendly. It's not like, you know, violent in any way. You're having a pie fight. Or, you know, you're, in my case, um, you know, some of the take that mechanics that you can do is you're, you're taking Go something <laughs> something away. And I really don't like confrontation. And that's part of what I don't like about uh, competitive games. I don't like the take that. But in this case, yeah, I'm going to point something out. She's whooped my butt at the Power Rangers deck building game every single time. And that's direct confrontation. So she doesn't like it, but she's good at it. <laughs> it doesn't mean I like it. So in this case, you know, I, I knew very well that I needed to do something to keep Jason from winning the game because there was no way I could catch up in my last turn because we do have that mechanic where if somebody, you know, triggers end game, you still have a full round as as with most games to uh, to catch up. But I knew I wouldn't be able to if he finished the round. So I sent him back home, you know, and away from all of his apples that he was about to deliver. Yes. And because of some poor decisions that I made earlier on, it really messed up my chances for winning. She made the right move and got the victory. But it goes to show that despite the fact that this game, you know, is a cutesy family game and is very easy to teach and play, the decisions matter. And I think that's one of the things that I like the most about it. If you don't make the right choices, you decide that you're just going to say no thanks to a quest, but you still need the, your quest trophy, that kind of bite you in the butt later on in the game because someone might do something and that's going to affect you and you're like, man, I really should have done this other thing. So you've got to keep all that in mind. And I can see that right now we're looking at the Board Game Geek page and it's listed as a complexity rating of, of two. And I have to agree with that. It's low complexity, but there's a lot of complexity with regards to the interplay between players. And we've only played this at the two player count, but it's something that I could see that if you play it at six, it'd be a little bit longer 
but also still very much a lot of fun. But you probably see a little bit more of those take that mechanics coming into play with pie fights and things like that. That being said, you don't have too many negative results to put you behind. I like the fact that even if something bad happens to you, you can get back into the game. Like I beat Julie in a pie fight, but she still won the game. Well, maybe I won because you did the pie fight. I don't know. Well, we had to try a pie fight at least one time. We were playing too nice, so I figured I should hit you in the face with a pie. Yeah, yeah, and we tied, but that still mean, meant that you won. Yes, that other game I we tied because I have more resources. No, no, the pie fight. We've tied the pie fight, but that oh, yes. meant that you won. Because I was the aggressor, yes, that is true. Yeah. In any case, I think this is definitely a fun game uh, to play with, you know, with younger, with younger kids and gamers or inexperienced gamers. I think that this would that this is fun. I actually wouldn't mind playing this again with you uh, at some point. It it's the kind of game that uh, is quick and easy to play. Doesn't take a lot of um, brain power. I mean, there's a little bit of strategy. It's not that easy, but it it's still. Uh, it's still uh, interesting. So, I mean, I had fun with it. Uh, I think that this is definitely a game you should consider if you have young gamers in the family. Yeah, and the, it does say that it's for ages like eight and above, and I think you can definitely get away playing younger. They might need a little bit of help. They might miss some of the strategy. But this is absolutely one of... This is going to be a keeper in our collection. I was quite surprised. We have some friends that didn't enjoy the game, but after we played it, I was like, wow, this game actually fits exactly what we're looking for. And the six player count means it's something that's very easy to be played around the holidays as well, which is when I think this will see the most amount of plays for us, at least until the little guy gets gets a bit older. Agreed. So on that note, we're gonna remind you to, wait, sorry, to remind you to check out our video, which will be coming the day after this is released. And now we're gonna tell you to, since I don't wanna use the same phrase, keep, keep playing games. games. What's up, Internet? My name's Paparazzo Dave Chapman. I'm the lead reviewer for the Rathole.ca, a co-host on The Legend of the Traveling TARDIS, and I'm back on What You've Been Playing Wednesday. Today, I'm recording from Game Haven in Sandy, Utah, just a few days after the SaltCon end of summer convention. SaltCon runs one big event in March, two smaller events throughout the year, and let me tell you, the 13-hour drive down was worth every minute. This was the closest to, quote-unquote, not working a convention that I was at in longer than I can remember. I played games for fun. What? Of the 15 games I played, there are two that really stood out for me. Rue, by a small Idaho publisher called Binary Coco, and Spooky Manor, an adventure-slash-game using the Parsley system. I'll talk about Rue another time, but I need to ramble on about Parsley for a bit. Parsley is something unique and special. It's a blend of an RPG and a social party game designed as an analog equivalent to classic computer text parser games like Zork and Oregon Trail and my Apple IIe favorite, Wizardry. These games are as old as the computer, at least the home computer, and I recently backed a book called 50 Years of Text Games that's going to clock in at just under 700 pages, so there's a lot of them. Designed by Jared A. Sorensen and published by Memento Mori Theatrics, Parsley, spelled P-A-R-S-E-L-Y, as in parsing text, requires one person to act as the parser, 
or the computer analog. Maybe that should be analog computer. Whatever. And any number of other players taking the role of the character. When I say any number, I mean that. You can run it with one player or 1,000 players. It's not uncommon to see it run as a convention panel where attendees just pass the microphone around, giving a single command and passing the mic. I've even played a number of games on social media hosted by Andrew Looney or members of the Looney Lab community where there is a surprising number of Parsley fans. It's a bit weird, but I love it. Spooky Manor is one of the original Parsley adventures, and it was sadly the only one of the three at this event that I was able to participate in. We only had three players that day, which makes for an interesting dynamic. When you have a small group, there's often a lot of table talk about what you want to do, people giving the parser commands in whatever order they feel like. Uh, a large-scale game ends up running very much like a single player because the game can't stall out for a conversation. Just like with the computer versions, the player will give prompts like go north, look at thing, get or use thing. The parser will then reply with the results. For example, go north. You are on a gravel path surrounded by trees. Look tree. You see a tree. Cut down tree. You don't have an axe. Go north. You are on a gravel path surrounded by trees. On the ground, you see a rusty axe. Get axe. You now have a rusty axe. It doesn't look very safe. Cut down tree. You try chopping when the axe breaks and hits you in the face. You are dead. Without any spoilers, Spooky Manor begins as you, a humble delivery person, ride your bicycle in the rain to deliver a package to Lord Spooky at his home, Spooky Manor. That's almost all I can say about the plot without spoilers. But I will say that if you go into the manor, it would be polite to hang your dripping wet rain jacket up on the coat hook. Yes, even little things like that matter. The most basic advice I can give you for any Parsley game is that you should look and touch everything. In fact, this isn't a 1990s anti-drug commercial. Go ahead and put it in your mouth. When I get back to Alberta, one of the things I'm going to do is pull out my Parsley book and take a look at the Pumpkin Town Adventure. And maybe I'll run it somewhere online. They also have a separate Christmas adventure called Kringle Crisis that can be connected to that. And we're all about the Christmas goodness here in the rat hole. So follow us on social media to watch for that. And you can read one of our writer Deborah's review of Parsley at therathole.ca slash parsley. And again, that's spelled P-A-R-S-E-L-Y. Here at therathole.ca, we put out primarily written content with occasional video reviews and interviews, as well as a weekly miniature painting series, Slinging Paint. You can find our YouTube and all of our social media at linktree. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash therathole dot C-A. Thank you for listening, and until next time, good gaming, and goodbye. Hi, I'm Jordan. And I'm David. And we are Board on the Air, a weekly radio show on CFCR. And tonight, on What Have You Been Playing, we are talking about... Fujikoro, a game by Game Brewer, designed by Jerome 
Demier and the art by Miguel Coimbra. This is a one to six player game where you're all samurai and you're all sent in by the Daimo to go into the Fuji, Mount Fuji, to go to all these shrines and collect as much stuff as you can from the volcano that's about to erupt. Yes, and you're being chased by dragons. Yeah. As everyone knows in Fuji. Yeah. So, as we said, this is by Game Brewer. Uh, really, the first time we've played it, uh, picked this up on a clear-out sale, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I also really enjoyed it. The big draw to this game, to me, was the how you craft your items. Because a big part of this game is its crafting. And what happens is you're going to be getting wood cubes, steel cubes, bone cubes into your backpack. And whenever you rest, you can craft a helmet, a weapon, or some boots or sandals. Yeah, and the crafting is on a grid. And you're making, you're shaping them like the, the weapons in the cards. And if you make that weapon, you get that, that card, basically. Which mm-hmm. can give you a bonus... If they're magical or it just gives you... A one-time... An effect every time you do certain actions. Yeah, they just help uh, build your engine. So there's a bit of an engine build to it. A bit of a dungeon crawl to it. And... A bit of fighting with the dragons. Yeah, there's some fighting, which is dice-driven. And then there's some resource management. Yes. Uh, I had never... I'd seen the game... But knew nothing about it. I mostly knew about the crafting style of it with the cubes and stuff. But I didn't know much about how the actual game played. Yeah. And as we started to do a little bit of research, we looked at the artist. And he's done Seven Wonders, Emotep, uh, Small World. uh, 157 games, apparently. Yeah, he's done a lot of art. Yeah. Uh, The designer, Jerome Demier, has only done this game. And he, I think he pulled it off, mm-hmm. right? Uh, as I said, going into it, we didn't really know that much about it. Uh, we did a teach and play in about three hours. Yeah. Uh, it says it's a half hour per player, uh, and that's just the game. The teach, teach was a little long because none of, none of us had played it, and we wanted to make sure we got the rules right. And for the most part, I think we did. Yeah. As far as I can tell, we got all the rules right. Yeah. Uh, The board itself is modular, uh, whereas you start with... One tile in the middle and... And a frame. Yeah. And you know where the shrines are. There's three shrines on the board. And a big part of it is just exploring the tiles and walking around and exploring a tile and being like, oh, there's a giant dragon there. Yeah, there's level one, level two, and level three tiles. And the further away from the center you go, the the bigger the dragons or... Bigger rewards. Bigger rewards that you're going to see. Uh, you also get more points for exploring those further away ones. Yeah, it's got an interesting timing mechanic where you... It's sort of like Hansa Teutonica, where you go to 20 points, uh, or a set score, and then you work towards the end game. Yeah. Uh, Hansa ends right at that score, where this one is you get to 20. And then it becomes the run 
running away, like in Clank, where you have your thing and you're getting out of there because everyone else has started to escape and you're starting to die quite rapidly. Yeah, you have seven rounds to get out, and I think the escapes pop up in the fourth or fifth round? Yeah, either third or fourth, I think. Third or fourth, somewhere in there. Uh, it is competitive, uh, and you can fight each other in this one. I, I never found any reason to. Yeah, the only reason I could think of wanting to fight someone is if they have something that you really need. Like, if no one's getting a lot of dragon bone, like, you could fight someone to take the dragon bone, or you could steal a magical item that you really need because it's the only one you can build. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, so really, you know, we went around, we attacked dragons, we did lots of exploration, we collected items. Uh, there's the, a few rule-breaking scrolls you can grab throughout the game. Yeah, and there's, you know, if you're beside a tile that somebody goes in to fight, uh, you can go in with them. And both of you are going to get the rewards. So it uh, allows you to double team those dragons. Yeah, because uh, it can also be played cooperative. Yeah. Uh, the big aspect of combat is initiative. Uh, the more... The longer your weapon is, the higher initiative you have. Magic weapons, if you have them, they give you plus four to your initiative. Yeah. So the max you could have is 12. But the dragons can go up to like infinite <laughs> yeah it, it's really about surviving and the the neat part with the combat i found is whatever your helmet is is how much life you have and, and each type of resource has a different number of hit points yeah so the dragon bone was three three magic items were four uh the stone was two and the wood was one uh and that grid, I think, was about a 4x4 four four grid-ish. It was, I think it was a 3x3, three three, and then you had two bottom ones. Yeah. And so you could stockpile that with a bunch of higher level things, but it's not going to allow you to build anything, because most of the helmets, most of the magical helmets, Need all a required a, or two or three different resources. And the other thing you have to notice, if, if you put all these high-level resources and you only take one damage... You have to get rid of one of those high-level resources, even if it's just the one damage. Yeah. You don't get a payback. Yeah, and with the normal weapons and stuff, once they're built, they're built. Uh, it doesn't matter what you take off your board. Uh, with the magical ones, if, as you're taking stuff off the board, if it changes the shape so that that magical item isn't built anymore, that magic item goes away. Yeah, and just to clarify one thing, it does matter what cues you remove with your weapon, because if you remove the middle cube out of your weapon, you have to modify it to make it legal. Yeah, there's there's different rules as to what's a legal weapon and what isn't. It has to have a handle, basically, which is two wood cubes. It has to have two wood cubes and be within the restrictions, yada, yada. Yeah. Uh, so, lots of interesting stuff going on. Uh, I'm looking forward to trying this again. Uh, I, th I don't know if player count really plays a factor. We played it at three. And I think the more people you play with, the bigger the map is, right? Yeah, the bigger the map, so maybe it might lower the amount of points we're getting from exploring, but yeah, it might also encourage more dragon fights. Or encourage you to fight each other, too. Yeah, because as we said, you can go up to six players. So. Exactly. I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we will talk to you next week.
Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast. And we've been playing a bunch of games over the last uh, week or so, but there's one in particular that we've uh, been playing a bunch of. What game is that, Anna Marie? That is Solar Storm, designed by Aiden Lowthers and published by Dranda Games. Yes, Solar Storm. This is a game that we uh, pre-ordered from our local game shop. I believe it came out in 2020, uh, but we didn't have it here um, available to us till now. Yeah. And it came in around, I think, May of this year for us, but Something we only like just started really playing it. And yeah, so let's talk about Solar Storm. The theme of Solar Storm is that you are uh, a crew of a ship. Uh, and you are on the ship and your power has kind of gone out from your engines and you are way too close to a sun <laughs> and you are, you know, minutes away from being incinerated and, <laughs> and burned into nothingness. And you are trying to get your engine power back online. You need to divert so power you to can, your energy core. Yeah, so that you can uh, power up your ship and get moving get away from the, the sun. Get the heck out of there. Yeah. So how does it work? You uh, you have a deck of cards that lays or that you lay out on the board in a three, three by three, three grid. nine card grid. When you have a uh, the power core in the middle, and then you have uh, an additional eight cards kind of surrounding it of various different rooms. There's uh, the med bay and the this and that, right? All these different yeah. spaceship type like rooms. Your, your crew quarters yeah. and, and things like that, mess hall and. Yeah, and each one of them is going to have uh, some areas that uh, can be, uh, what's the word, damaged? Yes. Or fixed. Yes. Um, and generally, they all start fixed, and then in the early in the game, you uh, you damage some parts of your ship at random. Yeah, just so that you're not cards. starting at full health. Yeah, so you kind of start the game differently every time you play. And that's, that's kind of how you start the game, and you start the game with a few resources in your pocket and... and yeah, That's the the energy core always starts in the middle of the the nine um or the nine card grid like in the three by three it's always yeah. in the middle but all the rest of them are um out like they can be put out at random yeah they're in a random order yeah and in various different adjacencies around this nine by or three by three grid and on your turn you're going to be doing three actions you're going to start with your meeple in the middle of the board in the uh, power energy core energy core. And you are going to either move around or try and fix broken parts of the ship or find some new resources or trade resources with somebody that's near you or activate the room because every room has a different power associated with it, a different like kind of special action each room will give to you. So opposed to your player actually having uh, like asymmetrical powers, the, the rooms have, have the powers, powers for that's you. So right. you can kind of try to use the rooms to your advantage as you move around. And all the while, you're trying to basically fix the rooms and you're trying to uh, divert the power. So once a room is fully restored of its power, you can then use an action to... Divert uh, your power. Yeah, divert power by uh, discarding a bunch of resource cards from your hand. Uh, which are listed on the card. Yeah, so on, on the right-hand side, top right side of the card, you've got three different resources. And they'll be... The resources you have in the game, you have data, which is a blue card, mm -hmm. metal, which is red, nanobots, which are purple, and energy, which are green. And so 
each of the rooms in the on your ship are going to have three different um, of those resources label mm-hmm. in that um, in that top corner. Yep. And then uh, as those get damaged, you need to repair them with those um, uh, resource cards you have in your hand. Yep. So if, you know, like a nanobot has been, you know, injured or, you know, damaged, you need to take a nanobot from your hand to repair and it. Repair, yep. Once a room is fully repaired then on the left top hand corner of the card mm-hmm. you've got um three symbols three resources you need to use to divert power yep. so um once you you've can, done that then yeah once you've played those cards from your hand then you you got a little divert to- um, power token you get to stick on there yeah so you've marked that you've kind of basically completed that room diverted all the power from that room towards the energy core and then you can move on because the whole point of the game is to divert power from those eight rooms to the energy core to win. Yeah, and then you have one person get back to the energy core so they can activate it. They can fire it, it up. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of how the game works. It's just moving around the ship, trying to make sure that you're keeping the uh, the different rooms in, in somewhat of good shape because they're constantly getting damaged through the, through the game. And if you have a room that is damaged... Uh, or has no damage cubes left on it and then gets damaged again, you basically blow a hole in the ship and you lose. You lose, yeah. Or yeah. if your resource deck runs out, then you, you lose, lose as well. well. So it's kind of a dire straits sort of game, kind of like um, Forbidden Desert, uh, where you, you know, you constantly have the piles of sand kind of piling up that you have to manage. This one is like, uh, you you're trying manage to manage the damage, the damage cubes. <laughs> that are on each one you're trying to uh keep cubes on the board once the cubes are gone you're in pretty rough shape and then yeah you try to divert power from each one of those rooms to the core and escape yeah and if you don't then you just burn and die and (laughs) (laughs) that's it you turn to dust but yeah that is try um, again in your next chip (laughs) that is basic (laughs) the basics of solar storm so we we just discussed this and reviewed solar storm along with dog lover and nine minute kingdom on our last uh, podcast which came out a couple days ago which was episode 43 i believe so if you're looking to hear more about solar storm and what we actually think of the game uh go ahead and check out uh yeah episode 43 the meeple dungeon podcast mm-hmm. and that being said i think that's it for this week other than i think our next game and we're just going to hype it up a little bit here yeah. is trekking through history yeah we're, we're playing that over the next few days and that will be our next review in episode 44 of the yes. meeple dungeon podcast but I think that's it then. Uh, <laughs> that's it for this week. We're going to run. We'll see you next week. Cheers. See ya. Hey there, this is Tim from the Board Game Hot Takes podcast, the show where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. Today, I'm going to talk about a game that I have played a lot, well over 100 times, and uh, got a chance to play it again this weekend, and that is Everdell. This is a game designed by James A. Wilson and published by Starling Games. Now, we reviewed this game on our show oh, probably a year and a half ago now, so you can listen to a full review there. We also got a chance to talk with James A. Wilson and have a really nice interview with him about some of his more recent expansions. But this is a game that keeps coming back to the table for me. It was uh, it has a special place in my heart. This was actually the first game that I ever backed on Kickstarter a few years after I got into the hobby and was really starting to pay attention to what was going on. When this came up, I just couldn't pass it up. The charming artwork by Andrew Bosley, the beautiful components, and the gameplay looked pretty fun. 
but was it going to work for me? Well, when I got it in, I immediately fell in love with it. Played it a ton. I played it solo. It's a game my wife enjoys. It's a game that I play with several different friend groups. It's even my daughter even considers it her favorite game, and she doesn't really like gaming that much. So this has been a big hit in our house. Now this week we played with the base game. We played with the extra extra expansion when uh, it was a three player game. And so when you have that number of players, it's fun to have a little variety in the deck. But I never play with that expansion if there's only two. And then we played with the the uh, critter powers that come in the Belfair expansion. What this does is it gives each player a slightly asymmetric power. I really like playing with them. It gives the, the, the game a little bit of a different puzzle every time. But I did introduce it for the first time with my wife. Well, she probably played with him in the past, but this is the first she remembered. And uh, she really hated it because one of the things you do when you get these extra player powers in your, you know, in your starting hand, then you have to give up one of the workers you're going to pick up later. What am I even talking about here? So a little bit about this game. Basically, it is a card tableau building game. The goal of the game is to essentially place up to 15 cards in your tableau, which creates your little critter city. So Everdell is a charming place full of anthropomorphic little animals that are running around. These are your critters, and they're building and working in little houses, and these are your constructions. At the start of the game, you don't have any cards in your tableau, but you have two little workers and a handful of cards. What you're going to be doing on the course of the game is either spend placing one of your workers out on the board, which are usually going to be in these worker placement spots that are going to collect your resources, or you're going to use those resources to play either one of the cards in your hand or one of the eight cards that are kind of a, a, a pool available for everyone to play from, and that's called the meadow. So you've got a decent amount of, of cards to choose from right from this beginning, somewhere around 13 or more cards. But if you can collect enough resources to create one of these, you'll put it into your city and it can do any number of things. It might give you immediate resources. It might give you a production that gives you resources now, but also later. It might give you a new worker placement spot that's only available for you in your city. Or it might break the rules of the, of the game and maybe give you some ongoing benefit. Something like every time you play a future card, then you get to pick up a card for free. Things like that. So you're going to be building up this little tableau that gives you ongoing benefits, makes you a little stronger. After you've played your two critters and you can't do anything else, then you pull those back and you also then get to pick up another critter typically. And then you'll do that over four seasons. So by the end of the game, the final season, you'll end up with six critters in your hand and a building tableau and you're going to be able to do all kinds of stuff. I love the kind of the escalation of this game and where it goes. And as I was mentioning with the special critter powers, it just adds a little bit of extra oomph. It gives you something that's a little bit different every, every game. Uh, my wife's card that she was playing with let her have a, a larger hand size and pick up cards from the meadow when she could normally just pick it up from the pile, for example. Uh, my card was the rat. My, my player power was the rat. And that let me put a little token out on one of the cards in the meadow. And if anybody played that card, then I got an extra resource uh, of my choice. And so I tried to optimize that, try to you know put it in a place where, somebody, where I knew somebody else was going to want the card or even a card that I wanted would, might block them from using it and would give me the resource if I took it. So it just adds a little bit of variety. If you've played Everdell before, I think it's worth digging into some of the expansions a little bit. Um, this game is, a, like I said, a favorite for me. It's in my top 10 games. It's a game I've, I've, I've played tons. In fact, I, I played it so much and used to talk about it on the Board Game Geek forum so much that I got invited to be a play tester by the designer, James Wilson, and had a really great time play testing the Spirecrest and Belfair expansions but also got to test the upcoming expansion, New Leaf, as well as 
a lot of testing with the new solo expansion, which is called Mistwood. And I'm really excited about that because the current solar uh, solar solo game is is decent, but the new solo expansion really changes it up, makes you feel like you're playing against a real opponent without making it too complicated to run. And I had a blast by testing that, so really looking forward to it. Anyway, a lot of rambling there about that game, but I think it's great if you haven't had a chance to try it, check it out. It's a very fun puzzle, uh, tight little economy, but always satisfying the way that it ends. Um, and if you're interested in the expansions, I think there's a lot to explore there. Um, and, and so, you know, if you played played the base game a lot, dig into the expansions. There's a lot of them that have a little bit of modules to them. So you can kind of mix and match and, you know, play the game in different ways, whatever works for you. Well, that will wrap up the topic today. This was Tim. Until next week, take care, everybody. Hi, everybody. This is David Rodriguez from the All Games New and Old YouTube channel here to tell you about what I've been playing. So this week I had a chance to play a couple games of Dead Men Tell No Tales. Uh, this game's a few years old. I want to say it came out in 2016 or 17. I could be wrong about that. It's designed by Kane Klenko. And this game, you play as pirates who are trying to take the loot off of a ship that is burning. And so while fires are growing and causing problems around you, you also have to deal with the undead crew of the ship. There are deckhands that will show up occasionally and sort of uh, spread across the ship, much like diseases and pandemic do. There are skeleton crew that you actually have to roll some dice to fight. And they can usually drop an item that'll be useful to you later. And then there are the guards. The guards are the ones who are guarding the treasure that you want to get. And the goal, depending on your difficulty, is to get a certain number of treasures off of the ship onto your dinghy outside the ship. Now, every pirate you can be has a different ability. So, for instance, one just has an extra action compared to everyone else. One can copy anyone else's power. One is really good at getting rid of those deck hands. There's a lot of different possibilities there. So you start with that, and you also start with a random item. And those will also give you abilities uh, such as being able to be put out fires better or being able to rest. Um, well, I say rest, but really it's a, it's a uh, bottle of rum, so I guess drink to recover stamina. And uh, you will have those at the beginning and uh, during the game, you'll actually be able to trade those around. And I'll talk about that in a second. So when you take your turn, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to explore the ship. And so basically there is a stack of tiles that you're going to grab the top one of and it will show you a room in the ship. You're going to take that and place it with the tiles that you've already placed down. The only rule there being that the doorways have to match up with other doorways. You can't have a doorway leading to a wall. So you do that, then you pull a token out of the bag, and that will have some of those uh, guards I mentioned. It could also have trap doors, which will help spawn the deckhands, which uh, is kind of a pain. There's about 20 of those tiles. You can end up getting through all of them uh, as you play the game, which is, which is fine to do. And then you're going to take your action. So you could move a space, and when you move, you're going to be going to a room that possibly is hotter than the one you're in, and that's going to be represented by dice on each tile. So you might be in a room where the die is only at the one pip, which is not a very strong fire at all. If you move into a room where the dice is, say, a three pip, your stamina uh, basically goes down. Well, actually, it's, it's measured up, but your uh, it goes up 
two points because that's the difference. Uh, as that stamina dial keeps going further up, you can get it to certain points where you can't go into a room that is of a certain heat. So first, you won't be able to go into a room that is a five heat. So you need to figure out some way to deal with those fires in there if that's the situation you're in. Uh, you could run, which gets you further, but costs a lot more stamina. Uh, you could also take out deckhands uh, in either the room you're in or an adjacent room. You can rest, which will get two stamina back for you. You could pick up any tokens that have dropped from defeating skeleton crew or guards. You can also trade your item. So I mentioned you started with an item. You can actually take that item and swap it with one of the other ones that no player has, or you could even swap it with another player. You would take the, their item from them, and then they would pick a new item from the area in the middle where they're all displayed. This is nice because it really gives you a lot of uh, dexterity in terms of being able to change what your character is able to do. It's like altering your special powers. You can even use the item you have with one action, then trade it for a new card, then use the action on that card. So it's really very flexible. Once everyone has done all their actions, you're going to flip over the bad stuff cards, as we call them, and that's going to show you, it might have, for instance, say, uh, a yellow two die on it. In that case, every room that has a yellow die with two pips on it is going to roll up to a hotter heat. That's really dangerous because if any of the rooms get up to six heat, that room explodes and you flip the tile over and that room is no longer accessible. Anything that it, that is in it is also destroyed. That can create a problem because there are several loss conditions for this game. So one of them is if you can no longer get the treasure amounts that you needed. So if you've blocked off an entire part of the ship that you can no longer pass through because uh, rooms have exploded, then you can't win the game anymore, so you automatically lose. There's also an explosion track at the bottom, so every time an explosion goes off, you move the token up the track. If that track gets all the way to the end, then you lose. If you need to put out deckhands and there are no more to put out, you can lose that way too. So I, there, there's a lot of uh, loss conditions as you might expect, and the win condition is just that you got to get that treasure off the ship. I found this game really fun. The first time we played through, we actually missed uh, a rule as far as a limitation on how those deckhands can spread out, and as a result, they were spreading out like crazy, and we lost really bad, really fast. But we realized we played something wrong. Uh, the next time we went through, uh, we managed to pull out a win, but it is tight and tense and there's things happening everywhere and every game can sort of feel like you're going to have more problems with a different thing so you might have more problems with explosions or you might have more problems with deckhands just depending on how things go i do think this game probably gets harder the more players that you have because every player triggers something bad happening and if the player that is best able to deal with it is nowhere near that thing and their turn comes up then that problem can still go further out of control uh, all that being said, I really enjoyed this game. I was really glad to get a chance to play it, and it's definitely one that I want to uh, have in my collection and probably get some expansions for. Again, I am David from the All Games New and Old YouTube channel, so you can look me up there on YouTube. I am at All Games New and Old on Twitter, and All Games New and Old on TikTok, which I occasionally do videos there too. Anyway, that's it for me this week. I hope to see you at one of the places that I hang out online. Hi, it's Riley Stock from the Board Game Community Show podcast, and I am back with another What You've Been Playing Wednesday. And what I've been playing is Wonderland's War. It's by Druid City Games with Tim and Ben Eisner and Ian Moss as the designers and then art by Manny Tremblay. The game is fantastic. 
beautiful work of art. I have the Kickstarter edition, which is even better with the miniatures. But at the same time, the base game is so cool with the standees because Manny's art is just gorgeous. The art on the board is gorgeous. Well, let's get into what the game is. The game is a lot of things and it intimidates people every time. It intimidated me my first time. And I find that after one round, people generally get it. So there's a lot to teach and I'm not going to teach it to you through this segment here. There's way better people to do that than me. But essentially it plays over three rounds and each round consists of two phases. The tea party phase in which you move around the tea party table and gain benefits like adding supporters to areas in the Wonderlands, gaining Wonderlandians to help you in your fight to take control, upgrading your character, gaining artifacts, gaining new quests so that you can earn even more victory points at the end of the game, right? Victory points, that's what it's all about. During this step, you might gain some madness shards. At the end of the tea party phase, whoever has the most madness shards, they're gonna gain an extra madness chip. Everybody else gains one, the person with the most gains two. Then you go to the battle phase. You've placed out your supporters into certain areas that you wanna try and take control of. You've built your bag. It's time to deploy those soldiers. You're gonna draw in and do simultaneous reveal of chips. And as you reveal those chips, you'll go up on the battle track. But every once in a while, you might lose a supporter through a madness chip. Oh, no. And if you have lost all of your supporters in one area, you are out of the fight. You gain no benefit. You can't qualify for first or second place, third and fourth and fifth place. They don't get anything anyways. But, uh, well, unless they had a quest card or land on a certain symbol on the battle track. But that is a much deeper dive than we are going to do here. First place, they get points and they get to place a castle on that spot, which gives them one strength when fighting in that area again in the future and three victory points at the end of the game. Second place gets half of the points. If you were to lose a supporter, you could flip over a shield and stop that. But then you lose the shields. But then that's one of the nice things about if you end up losing all of your supporters and you you fail out of the fight, you get your shield back and you'll be able to use that in another fight in the future. Once you're finished fighting though, you don't just put your chips back in your bag, you will put them in an exhausted area. And then once you've drawn four madness chips total, you're gonna put all of those exhausted chips back in your bag as well as those madness chips. And then you get to start fresh essentially, drawing more tokens and increasing your chances of getting those goodies. Uh, different chips have different abilities. Pretty standard stuff if you've played things like Quacks of Quiddenburg. After finishing fighting in all of the areas, you will move to the second round and you start with new cards around the table that give different benefits. Each round getting stronger, so you might be able to recruit better allies or get more things to help you succeed. The game is an intimidating teach and learn. When I first learned it, I didn't really understand what I was doing until I had finished my first practice round. And then all of a sudden it all came together. So when I teach this game, I generally teach war phase and then tea party phase because the war phase really helps to make the tea party phase make more sense. I think that almost everyone that I've showed this game to has fallen in love with it. It is easily in my top 10. Comparing it to Quacks, I like this a lot more because I feel like there's ways I can mitigate those 
terrible odds of just bad luck. You know, I can place more supporters in a certain area if I feel like I really need to get that area. I feel like when I lose in this one, it's not, ah, oh, I just had really bad luck. It's, ah, oh, I could have strategized a little bit better. Oh, I should have put more supporters in this area. And yeah, of course, there's plenty of moments where you just have bad draws, but I'd say that's about the equal amount of bad luck playing just about any game where you draw cards randomly or roll dice, but not as much bad luck as I seem to experience in Quacks. Uh, but they're both great games, though. I would still gladly play Quacks, but if given the choice, I would play this over that. They are doing another Kickstarter for it soon, so you can get the really nice edition, which I have. It's got some super nice bags, really pretty miniatures, nice chips that are like poker-style chips, so they feel a lot better than cardboard. And they're also doing a mini expansion. We don't have any real details on that yet, but I am excited to see whatever they do because I think any addition they throw at us will enhance our experience. So that has been what I've been playing. You can listen to the Board Game Community Show wherever you podcast. This week's guest is Nikki Valens, who is a designer. They've designed awesome games like Mansions of Madness, Quirky Circuits, Arkham Horror 3rd Edition, which is another game that could easily be in my top 10 if I got it played more. So be sure to check that out. I've got lots of awesome past guests and some awesome future guests lined up. All right, and that is it. Until next week, keep nerding out. Hi, this is Andrew Buckle of SupportingGame.com, and I'm here to talk about what I've been playing. This week, I'm going to talk about Space Empires 4X. This game was designed by Jim Crone, with art direction and cover art from Roger B. McGowan, and a map and counter layout from Mark Simonich. The counter art comes from Strategy First Computer Games. Space Empires 4X was initially published in 2011 by GMT Games, and it's been through four full printings since then, with a fifth one currently on their P500 system. It's also spawned three expansions, two of which are already out, in close encounters and replicators, and a third, All Good Fiends, is on its way. I own a physical copy of Space Empires 4X and the first two expansions, and I've played it in person quite a few times over the years, but recently I've been playing on Board Game Arena, where there is an excellent implementation of this currently in beta. It's got a lot of the base game's advanced rules already worked in, and it runs very smoothly and is a great way to play this game remotely. So, Space Empires 4X. The 4X comes from the 4X genre of explore, expand, exploit, and exterminate, which has been used in many civilization games and also space civilization games, both board games and computer games. In board gaming terms, there's a lot of 4X space games out there, but two of the most popular are Eclipse and Twilight Imperium. And I think that Space Empires 4X stacks up quite well against those, but it offers quite a different experience as well. The first thing to note is that this is not a miniatures game. This is a hex encounter game. And so those who come in from the wargaming or historical gaming side are going to maybe have a bit of an easier transition to what this looks like on the table 
than those who have played more of the Twilight Imperium and Eclipse models. But something that's very cool out of going with Hex Encounter is that there's a significant fog of war compared to a lot of those other games. Because your chits, so what chips you actually have in the area, aren't revealed to your opponent until they run into them. They're face down, and that allows for significant fog of war until a first actual battle. The game also lets you build decoys so you can mislead your opponent about what ships are where. Something that really stands out in Space Empires 4X compared to many other games is how important the exploration is and how it really feels like exploration. You start off with only your home world revealed. The neighboring areas of space are counters with your player color on the back that are called your home system. You have some idea what's going to be there and it's generally a little bit safer, but there's still some danger markers that can wipe your ships out entirely. Beyond that, there's white border deep space where the rewards can be greater, including rich deposits of minerals, but the risks are also higher. So while you have a general idea of what's in your home system, the specific orientation of it is going to be different every time you play. And the deep space counters are only a few selected from a much larger pool, so there's going to be significant differences there from game to game. And another interesting part of that comes with the way technology works in this game. You can upgrade your ships in many different areas, from researching ship size, which lets you build bigger and better ships, to improving the individual attack and defense levels of ships, to researching movement, which lets your ships move faster, or tactics, which lets them fire earlier in combat. That's another important difference in this game, is that combat is not simultaneous. Ships have a letter rating, and so all the A's will fire first, then all the B's, then all the C's. And if there's a tie, if both people have A's, it goes to who has the higher tactics level. If it's still tied, then the defender fires first. There are also special map locations like asteroids and nebulae, which affect that. So a lot of the combat is about making sure that your guys are able to shoot before they're destroyed. But a cool part of this is that your technology decisions are made in secret and they apply to ships when they're built. But in order to upgrade a ship to a higher technology level later, it's got to go to a shipyard. So there's uncertainty for your opponent in just how good your ships are, as well as what kind of ships you have. And they don't really learn that until they get into a battle with you. The last thing to talk about here is player count. I've primarily played this as a two-player game, and I think it works quite well there. But there are options to play with three or four players, and I think that that could be cool as long as you're prepared for a longer game with some potential diplomacy and negotiations worked in. The standard game is you go head-to-head -head and you try to destroy your opponent's homeworld before they destroy yours. However, in practice, I usually wind up calling it long before that because it's usually pretty obvious when a side gets to a point where they're not going to be able to come back. But there are also cooperative scenarios where multiple players take on either doomsday machines or alien empires, and those can be a lot of fun. 
those also work very well as a solo game and can be a good way to get into this system. And there's an incredible amount of variety in just the base game here before it gets ramped up even further with the expansions. There are plenty of ways to customize the game to your particular desires, including with a variety of interesting advanced rules. I think Space Empires 4X is a terrific game, and I highly recommend checking it out. I'm Andrew Buckholtz, and you can follow me on Twitter at Andrew Buckholtz, B-U-C-H-O-L-T-Z. You can also find my board game writing at BoardingGame.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome, loyal listeners of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. This is your life. Do you remember this voice? Agricola is the best game ever. Or maybe this. Twilight Imperium, Twilight Imperium, Twilight Imperium. That's right. It's Royce Calverly, host of Definitely a Board Game Podcast. Thanks, Ralph. That's right, I'm back. For those of you with long memories, you might remember that I was a regular contributor several months back, but took a bit of an extended break over the summer. And now the fall has arrived, the leaves are falling from the trees, and definitely a board game podcast is back with new episodes starting next week. But it isn't all about me, this is about what you've been playing Wednesday, and I'd like to talk about a game that, well, broke my brain to be honest. Look, my jam is medium to heavy Euros, and I love a game that really challenges me while I'm playing it. But when it comes to Euros, I get them. I understand how they work. I can understand the process the designer went through to create these great play experiences. But once in a while, a game comes along that I, I simply don't understand. I can't even begin to figure it out. I don't understand how the designer came up with the idea. I don't understand how it works. And after several plays, I still can't I can't believe it works. These are the games that keep me up at night. These are the games that are just really exciting. QE by Gavin Brinbaum and from BoardGameTables.com is one of those games. Look, it just doesn't make sense. How does it work? Why does it work? Why is it so much fun? I don't get it. All right, let's start with the, the boring part. QE stands for Quantitative Easing. And I got a chance to play with an accountant, so he explained it to me that quantitative easing was when countries bailed out failing businesses during a financial crisis or something like that. To be honest, even though I asked the question, I kind of zoned out on the answer. Sorry, Dave. But ultimately, it doesn't matter because the theme really doesn't make any sense anyway. It doesn't really match the mechanisms that you're playing. At its heart, QE is an auction set collection game. I guess, but to call it that is really kind of unfair to the game. Uh, in reality, QE is a brain-burning, hidden information deduction game where you can literally bid any amount of money. Yeah, I'm not doing a good job of explaining this. Uh, maybe it'd be best if I explain how a turn works. All right, so each player represents a country. One player is the lead player. Uh, they set a company out in the middle of the table. 
each company that they set out has an industry type and then a country assigned to it. So think of it like a, there'll be a housing industry or agricultural, and one will belong to Japan, another to Europe, another to U.S., and so on. Um, each country has an industry type and country. Then the lead then is going to write an opening bid on their blank check. So everybody will see what the lead has bid. Each other player can then write their own bid on their checks and passes them hidden to the lead player. The lead player will review all the bids and will announce the player that has bid the highest. So it might be the lead player, in which case you know exactly what was bid, but more likely than not, it's one of the other players. So here's the, the tricky part. Only the lead player and the winning player will actually know how much was bid for that company. So you know who won, but you don't know what they bid most of the time. After a set number of turns, the players are going to total up the value of the companies they've won. Uh, they'll then get bonus points for companies of their countries. Uh, they will get additional bonus points for having companies of the same type and for sets of different types of companies. So uh, you trying to figure out what type of companies to get is also part of it. The player with the most points wins. If we just go by that, we're looking basically at a bog standard auction game. But here's the twist. When a player writes down their bid, they can literally write down any number. There's no limit to how much money you can bid. You want to bid 20 bucks? Go for it. You want to bid 80 quadrillion dollars? Go for it. There is no limit. The only catch is at the end of the game, if you've bid the most over the course of the game, you lose automatically. So how do you know how much to bid? Well, you don't. You're just trying to figure out whether or not you're going to be less than another player, but still win the companies. Because if you don't get the companies, you won't get any points and you won't be able to win. But if you spend too much to get the companies and you end up spending the most, you lose automatically. Ah, it breaks my brain every single time. How does it work? I have no idea. I can't understand it, but it works so well. It's smooth, it's fun, it's sometimes you feel like you're having an aneurysm in the best possible way. <sighs> QE is a game that I can't even imagine how the designer came up with the idea, let alone made it work. It's a game that is truly unique. There is literally nothing else like it, and I can't recommend it enough. That's QA from Board Game, oh, sorry, QE, <laughs> let's see, I told you it broke my brain. QE from BoardGameTables.com. I'm Royce Calverly from Definitely a Board Game Podcast, and this has been What You've Been Playing Wednesday. If you're interested in hearing more from me, definitely check out Definitely a Board Game Podcast, available anywhere that podcasts can be found. In next week's triumphant return, we welcome Steve from Vancouver, and we talk about all sorts of new Kickstarters, as well as the idea of Kickstarter fatigue in the post-COVID era. That's it for me this week. See you all next week on What You've Been Playing Wednesday. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Hey everybody, Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to contribute because we're an hour and 18 minutes into it. And you know what? That is, right now, for me, that's the perfect number. Um, I always like to thank the listener for taking the time and, uh, and you know, kind of 
listening to our thoughts on games that we've been playing recently. And uh, always, 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 thank you so much to the content creators who contribute every week to make this uh, special weekly episode happen. So uh, thank you, and uh, we'll catch everybody uh, next week. But before that, keep your stick on the ice and take care out there, eh?